Joshua chapter 11. It's a great book, and uh, it's a very special section that we're finishing, actually, before we move on to the last part of the book. Chapter 11 and 12 uh, talk about the final conquering of the land of Canaan. Up until this point, Joshua and his armies have entered into Canaan. They defeated Jericho. They defeated Ai. They went into the central part of an area known as Canaan, and they made a covenant with the people of Gibeah, the Gibeonites. That was not supposed to have happened, but it turned out, because God used it that way, to be a benefit to them. Because as a result of their having made that covenant with the Gibeonites, there were several of the southern city-states that got together against Gibeon because of that covenant that they had made. And as a result of that decision that those kings made, it made it very easy for Joshua and his troops to fight against them in an open space rather than in their individual cities, which would have taken a great deal more time and effort, and it would have been very costly for them to do that. But they had an advantage in the open fields or territories where they could assemble their army and fight all of those kings all at one time, and that's exactly what happened in the southern uh, area of the land of Canaan south of the Sea of Galilee, for instance. Everywhere from that point, the central and southern parts of the country have now been successfully uh, finished in terms of their uh, invading the land and conquering the peoples that were in that area. Now, there are a lot of cities that were not yet conquered, but the major cities were indeed overcome and the people of Israel were able to establish themselves in that area. But they still had the northern kingdoms to worry about. And that was a larger area. And there were many more uh, people groups involved in that northern region. And of course, the word spread fast that Israel had defeated the southern kingdoms. And now we're going to find in chapter 11 that the same sort of thing is beginning to form against Israel by the northern kings. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. But it's very encouraging to Joshua, I'm sure, that God speaks to him in that approaching uh, conflict that God is in control, reminding Joshua, don't be afraid, be of good courage, and you will see that God will indeed take care of you in this process of defeating those kingdoms. That had to have been a very, very wonderful thing for Joshua to be able to depend on the Lord's leading, the Lord's uh, affirming that they were going to be able to do that which they had set out to do. Remember, uh, over 40 years prior to this, uh, the majority of the spies that went into the land said that we cannot defeat these people because there are giants in the land and walled cities and they're just was no way that the people of Israel could conquer such a large number of armies that would exist in that territory that God had, had told them he would give to them. So that negative report, again, resulted in them being in the wilderness for 40 years. 
But now they are in the land of Canaan and they have been so far successful in defeating those nations that they came against with great victories. And God was doing great miracles on behalf of the people of Israel, both in Jericho and in uh, the area that they had just finished conquering. The, the Lord brought hailstones. The Lord uh, held the sun in the sky and the moon uh, for a period of about a full day so that they could have daylight to complete the victory that they had set out to establish themselves in that territory. Now they're entering into the northern part of the nation. And this is how that particular campaign developed as it's recorded for us here in chapter 11. So again, we're in chapter 11 of Joshua. We'll begin reading from verse 1 where it says, And it came to pass when Josh, uh, Jabin, rather, king of Hazor, heard these things, talking about the conquest of the southern kingdoms, that he sent to Jobab, king of Medan, to the king of uh, uh, Shimron, the king of Akshaph, and the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain south of the Chinneroth, which is another name, by the way, for the Sea of Galilee, in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as a sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. So we have here a very large contingency of enemies against Israel. Not just five kings, but a multitude of cities that were uh, very well populated, highly populated, armed men, and they had chariots and horses. That was something that Israel hadn't yet come against, at least in terms of uh, this particular series of events that have been occurring within the land of Canaan. They were meeting a force that was numberless, almost, it seems. Well, the fact is, Josephus, in the first century, uh, much later, actually, than these events had taken place, another 1,400 years had passed by the time Josephus was on the scene, but he records in his Antiquities of the Jews that these troops amounted to about 300 foot soldiers, 10,000 uh, cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. Now, I don't know where he gets the numbers, but uh, he generally is credible, so it may be in some of the uh, writings, like in the book of uh, Japheth uh, that we saw in, in, in our study the last time, Jasher, rather. The, the book of Jasher was still available uh, to Josephus. It's lost to us. But it may have been that in that book there was a record of the total number of uh, the people that came against Israel. But it was a large force. That's what we're told here in chapter 11 of Joshua. And it was a formidable challenge for Joshua and all of his troops. But they knew that God had been with them and that God had promised that he would continue to be with them. And in fact, it tells us in verse 5, when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel, but the Lord. And there's another time where I read the word but, where I'm just so thankful that it's 
a record for us that God is about to do something whenever we see the word but the Lord or but God or but the angel of the Lord. But the Lord is a very, very common phrase that I love to see over and over again in the word of God in both the Old and the New Testament. But he says, but the Lord, verse 6, said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. God says he's going to take care of the problem. Joshua goes forward believing God. That is a pattern for success with God in everything that we do. Let us be mindful And I've mentioned it before. I want to reiterate and will continue to reiterate as we go through this great book. These things are given for our example. And so there's something in this passage, even though it's a history, uh, battles are, are not necessarily something that we all look forward to reading about, but the significance of the way these battles are won is that God has provided the means for that battle to be won. And that is something that we need to remember. It's written for our benefit so that we can know that our God does for us exactly as he did for his people throughout the years. And it's still very much a promise that God has made to us. And we can look at these battles in the land of Canaan as kind of a picture of the things that we have to deal with in our own lives. We have struggles. We have things that hinder us from being able to move forward and possess that which God has promised us. Well, what has he promised us? He promises all kinds of blessings in spiritual heavenly places. Those spiritual blessings and physical blessings that God has promised throughout the Word of God and especially in the New Testament for the believer in Christ Jesus. We need to appropriate those promises. We need to be able to possess that which God has given. There's a difference between inheritance and possession. The people of Israel were given an inheritance. That entire land of Canaan was their inheritance. But they did not possess all of that which God had given them. And that's a very, very important thing to understand that although we have been given many promises, it's our responsibility to possess them. We have them as an inheritance, but it's like receiving a gift and not bothering to open the gift. We need to appropriate. We need to open the gift that God has given. We need to take possession of that which God has provided. It's an inheritance that is ours, but it does nothing for us unless we act on that aspect of what God intends for us to do in order to receive that blessing for ourselves. So that's the picture that we have in this Old Testament series of events that we'll be reading about tonight and further on as we continue to study this great book. Keep in mind that they are examples for us so so that we can know that God will do the same for us as he did for Israel in regard to that which he has promised. Here again in verse 6, he's promised Joshua, I have already 
done this. He has promised him that the victory is theirs. The victory is certain. In fact, all of the enemies will be slain by that same time tomorrow, the very next day when they enter into the battle. And he also says there's a responsibility that Joshua and his people must take upon themselves. And you might think of it as being strange at first, but there's a real, very, very certain reason that God makes this demand of Joshua. He says it in verse 6 again, where we read, You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, it may not make any sense militarily for them to take all of that which was such a very, very powerful uh, set of equipment, if you will. The chariots were like the tanks of the day. Horses were used in battle, and they were so very, very uh, overwhelming when they were used against their enemies. But God said, I want you to hamstring those horses, making them incapable of being used in battle. They would be too lame. And then the chariots, no longer available because they would be burned in fire. Why? Because God said, you need to trust in the Lord God, your holy and awesome provider. He is the one who goes before you in the battle. He wins the battle. It's his battle, not yours. And he says, you need to trust him and not horses. You need to trust him and not chariots. You need to trust him and not the great numbers of men in your army. So that's why God said, and it's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy, through Moses, you are not to take to yourselves horses. You are not to rely on chariots and horses in the battle because you are to rely only on God and he will then provide that which you need. That was the way that David operated. And remember in Psalm 20, David said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And that was the attitude that he wanted his people always to have. And he wants us also to have that same attitude toward him and toward all that we might face that are things that we are facing as challenges or opposition or whatever it may be that we have to deal with. We know that we can trust in God. We don't trust in anything other than his ability to do what he can do for us. And when we rely on him, instead of rely on our own resources, we're so far better off than we would have been otherwise. That was the case for all of the people of God throughout the years. It was what God expected of Joshua, and Joshua complied, and we see a great victory indeed that Joshua will see in the days ahead with regard to these kings. As many as there were against them, they knew that God was on their side. And when God's on your side, it doesn't really make any difference how many are coming against you. I'm mindful of the fact, I hope you are too, of the story in Second Kings where the armies of the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and Hezekiah was fearful of, of what was going to happen. Isaiah comes to him and says, Don't worry, Hezekiah, not an arrow will enter this city of Jerusalem. And that very night, 
an angel of the Lord slaughtered over 180,000 Assyrians that were circling around the city. In one night, an angel of the Lord destroyed that large army. One angel can do a great deal of damage, apparently. So who is going to come against us? And that's why Paul said so very boldly, Oh, if God be for us, who can be against us? And that's exactly what Joshua now is realizing. God is for him. He's with him. And in this battle, there is going to be victory. Verse 7 says, So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. It's interesting to note, by the way, that every one of the battles that are won by Joshua and his armies were offensive in, in scope. Joshua initiated preemptive strike, uh, except for with regard to Ai. That was another battle plan. And of course, with Jericho, God did a very different thing there as well. But in the destruction of all the various forces of the Canaanites that they met in the fields during the southern campaign and now during the northern campaign, they, these are offensive moves, preemptive strikes by, Jer- by the armies of Israel. And catching the other armies off guard was a great strategy that Joshua used very, very effectively. Verse 8 says, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misrephoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them, and he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. It's interesting to note that there is a tell, which is a mound in northern Israel, that is understood to be the tell or mound of where the city of Hazor once stood. That mound or tell is some 200 acres in size. Now, the city of Jericho was only 8 acres in size. And so it's a very large uh, area, and it's the head city, the leading city in the northern territories of the land of Canaan at the time. That's why... It was important for Joshua to take the action that he does against this city. He goes into the city, he destroys everything, and he then, having taken the king and successfully entered the city, it tells us in verse 11, they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, and there was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. So apparently Joshua did this perhaps to set an example to all the other Canaanite cities that they are now in the land, they are occupying the land, and they are defeating even the greatest city of all in that northern region, and none can stand against them. So the conquest of the northern territories was very, very quick. 
as far as the feeding of the armies is concerned. But they also had to go into the various cities and complete the task of doing what God had instructed them to do through his command to Moses. Keep in mind that he had told Moses that all of the Canaanite peoples would have to be destroyed. Men, women, and children. That seems very severe, yes, and many people are offended by that. But we must keep in mind that God's purpose was to remove all of the threat of godlessness and worship of false gods in the land of Canaan before they would occupy that land. They needed to cleanse it. And God said to Abraham 400 years before this that the Amorites, the Ammonites, the people that were in the land of Canaan, needed to be destroyed, but it wouldn't happen in Abraham's day, but it would happen 400 years plus later. And because God was willing to wait until the Ammonites were at a place where God's judgment had to fall on them. The iniquity of the Amorites, Ammonites had now been fulfilled, and it was time for God to bring judgment. Now remember, God's mercy was available to them. He showed his mercy to Rahab in the, land, in the city of Jericho. She believed, and she was saved. There was opportunity that God gave to allow them to turn to him. But the vast majority of the people did not turn to God in that land. And so that was why God destroyed them. They needed to be destroyed so that they could be in the land without having any kind of defilement by the people who remained. Unfortunately, they didn't do a complete job of this. And that is why that we'll read in the subsequent chapters of the history of Israel, that things did not go well for them with respect to their living out, their commitment to obey what God had called them to do. And that, again, is another example for us, a reminder that we need to be obedient to what God commands us, because if we're not, we will suffer the consequences, whether it's through sin or through any kind of uh, trouble that God allows us to have to endure to bring it back to the place where we are willing to turn it over to him, as so often was the case with regard to the people of Israel in their first several years in the land, under the time of the judges. There was a very, very cyclical series of events that took place over and over again that we can read in the book of Judges. It started out well. They worshipped the Lord. Then they began to prosper. And as they prospered, they began to turn away from God. And as they turned away from God, oppression came from other peoples around them that should have been destroyed, but were not destroyed. And as a result of their having not been destroyed, they became uh, servants of those people groups over the period of, say, 40 years or so, until they cried out to their God, and then God delivered them with a great deliverance, and they came back to the Lord for a season, and then they 
went through the same cycle over and over and over again through the time of the book of Judges. Again, examples for us. We need to be consistent in our devotion to our God. He gives us the means by which we can do so. He provided the means by which they could do so in those days. But, unfortunately, when we see the word but, and it's not related to the Lord, but Israel, but the people, but the leaders of the people, but whoever but God, it always turns out bad. In this case, they're doing a good job. They're succeeding in conquering the peoples. They're going through those major cities, as we will see at the latter part of this chapter. They go into several other cities and do a complete job of destroying the peoples in those cities. But they don't invade all of the cities in the territories, neither in the north or the south. But we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 11 and in chapter 12 the extent to which they did indeed follow the commands of the Lord. Verse 13 says, But as for the cities, and we just read that, but I'll repeat it again, As for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. They struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now here in the latter part of chapter 11 is a general summary of all of Joshua's conquests, both in the south and in the north. He begins with verse 16 by saying, Then Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel, and its lowlands, from Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, and struck them down, and killed them. So Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. Now there's an interesting note coming later in our reading of the book of Joshua, but I'll mention it here. You remember Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the twelve spies who gave a good report. Joshua and Caleb are now very elderly. And in fact, we get an indication of how old Caleb is because he will tell us in chapter 14, I believe it is, that he is now 85 years old and they have been since Moses was commanded to go into the land through Kadesh Barnea, but that's when the people of God rejected their good appraisal and received the negative report of the other ten spies. That was now over 45 years before this time in chapter 14 that I'm referring to. And in that passage, we're told that Caleb is 85 years old. He and Joshua were the only two men who were part of the first generation. The first generation had all passed away in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. 
they were both probably around 20 to 40 years old when they first entered the area of Sinai, having escaped the land of Egypt. Now, they're both very old, in their 80s. Now, Joshua, we're going to be told, will live to be 110. So he's not yet completely done the work that God has called him to do. He's still got some time left. But it tells us that the task that Joshua had been given by the Lord was indeed completed. And he says, again, it was a very long time that it took for them to complete the task. Going from city to city, as they now were doing, basically in their cleanup operation, the armies had been defeated rather quickly, but the work of possessing the land took a great deal of time. And that was as it should be, by the way, because God had told Moses that he's going to lead them into that land and he would give them a land, the land a little at a time, little by little, not to overwhelm them because to take all the land all at once would spread them much too thin. So uh, that was the logic that was given to Moses and that is the approach that Joshua is now taking. And it does take a great deal of time in order for that to be done. So now in verse 19, it says there were, it was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and all the others they took in battle. For it was the Lord, uh, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice again that it says the Lord hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. They came to the place, as did Pharaoh back in the days of Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But over a period of time, it was because Pharaoh had been hardening his heart on his own, by his own actions, until it came to the place where it says that God set that hardness in place, like cement. And that's the word that is used here, as well as it was used against Pharaoh, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a Hebrew word that implies he set it in place. They had nothing to do with it. God did that. But they had already hardened their hearts against God. Using a different word for hardening of the heart there, it is implying that they refused to allow themselves to believe, even though they saw and heard of the great things that God was doing to the people of Israel, they could have repented and they could have received the promise as Rahab had done, but they did not because God ultimately had to do that which was necessary. He hardened their hearts, again as he had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 21 says, And at the time that... Um, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. Now he's talking about the giants who were in the land. Very important here, we'll see in a moment. He didn't conquer all of the giants, but just those that are mentioned in this passage. But there were several giants in the land, different giant clans, and they occupied cities 
in that territory. And they were, again, as you recall, one of the reasons why the ten uh, spies had said, we can't take the land because there are giants in the land. And there were many of them. They were known by several names. The Zamzumim, the Anakims, the Rephaim, the Nephilim, and others, the Elim. And many of them were different sects, but they were all sort of related and descendants of the original Nephilim that inhabited the earth prior to Noah's time. We're not exactly told how they continued to exist beyond Noah, except for the fact that it's probable that the gene pool had already been corrupted even in Noah's immediate family. His sons and daughters-in-law were the ones through whom the giants would have descended. So here we have this very fact that Joshua has utterly destroyed all of those giants in those territories. And he says in verse 22, None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Now keep in mind that Gaza, Gath, Ashdod, that territory is a territory of the Philistines. The Philistines were not defeated. Not until David's time. And it's important to note that that is so because it tells us that Joshua did not defeat the giants who were in that portion of the territory. Why is that important? Well, for only one reason, I suppose. It has to do with David when he was very young. And remember when David came to the armies of Israel when they were standing against the Philistines, who was it that David heard shouting out curses against the people of Israel? The giant Goliath. And he was a giant from the land of Gath. Left in that territory by Joshua were his ancestors. And he was defeated by David many years later. I wonder if God allowed those giants to stay in that territory just for that one reason, to glorify himself through his servant David. Well, he goes on in chapter 11, verse 23, to finish the chapter. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Now that is going to be explained in the latter half of the book of Joshua, how the land was divided to the various tribes. But before we get to that, and we won't get to it tonight, but in chapter 12, again, there is a list of those kings that were conquered in the Canaanite invasion of the nation of Israel into the land. It beginning with actually what Moses had already accomplished on the eastern side of the Jordan River by conquering certain kings in that territory north of the Dead Sea and on the eastern side of the Jordan. He was told not to invade Moab. He was told not to invade the territory of Ammon because 
those were territories that God was preserving because of the descendants of Lot. But north of Ammon, and by the way, Ammon is a familiar name if you think of it because it's the name of the city Amman today, which is the capital of Jordan. So that's what the area that he were talking about, that territory of Jordan and southward into the uh, Arabian Desert. But going north of that, the other areas north of that on the eastern side of the Jordan were conquered by Moses before the people entered into the land of Canaan. And that territory was given to two and a half tribes of Israel, Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The first six verses of chapter 12 talk about those conquests of Moses. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Eshbon and ruled half of Gilead, from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is in the border of the Ammonites, and the eastern Jordan plain, from the Sea of Chinneroth, which again is the Sea of Galilee, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, the road to Beth Jeshemoth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Meacathites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So again, a recap of the history of the conquest of Moses on the eastern side of the Jordan before the people entered into the land of Canaan. Now, the remainder of chapter 12 is a record of the various kings in the land of Canaan that were conquered by Joshua. And it's a fairly lengthy and time-consuming read, and I'm not really sure it would be worth our time to read all of it, but we'll look at verses 7 through 8 together, where it says, And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions, in the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All of them were destroyed, and all of the land was taken, and now was given to Israel to occupy. It was their inheritance. The remainder of chapter 12 is just a list of the 31 kings who were the kings in the various cities in that territory that we just described. I'm not going to go through them because it's just a very tedious read. It says the same thing over and over again except for the name and the city of the conquered 
uh, king and his territory. So you can read it if you want. Um, but I'll skip over that just to finish our study tonight with a few final comments with regard to the conquering of the land. Again, we have emphasized that these things have been given to us as an example so that we can learn from them. So what have we learned? We have learned that God, when he is leading, will accomplish everything that he says he will do for us if we will obey. That's a key factor in all of this. God wants to bless. God wants to give good gifts. And he does extensively give beyond our expectation. That's why Paul says he is exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We know that we have precious promises given to us, according to Peter. And I love the fact that Peter uses that word so often, precious promises. They are precious. They are important. They are wonderful blessings that God has given to us. But we need to appropriate them. We need to take them to ourselves. And the only way that we can do so is by putting our trust in Him, allowing the Holy Spirit in us to lead us into that place where God will indeed do for us what He has promised. That requires commitment from all of us. It requires a desire to serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It requires a commitment to His Word, a commitment to prayer, a commitment to fellowship with one another in the faith. It requires us to be all that He expects of us in every aspect of our lives. We are to honor Him. Are we doing that? I believe for the most part, most of us, if not all of us, are. If we aren't, we should be. But when we fall, when we have things that come our way that deviate, that trick us into falling into traps that Satan can indeed set for us, against us, we know that we have an enemy who wants to keep us from participating in all that God has provided. But we also know that he has nothing on us when we are wearing the armor of God, when we allow the Lord to go before us, when we know that the Lord is with us and covers us in the shadow of his wings, when we know that we can continue to stand on that sure foundation, the solid rock, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, when we know that he is our rear guard, when we know that he has made it so that we are victorious through him. And remember, it's not because of anything that we can do or are doing. It's because of what he has already done. That's why it's so important for us to stand on the word of God. And remember, it is important for us to know his word well so that we can go through those various passages of the New Testament especially and see those promises that he has laid out for us, those wonderful little gems that he sets before us that we can grab and possess and claim as our own. What a blessing it is to know that God does these things for us, to make it so that we can live out our lives in a way that glorifies Him and brings honor to Him and blesses us beyond measure. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. They're ours for the taking. Just as those cities were theirs for the taking 
in that day. That's the example that we had before us. And that's the way that we should continue the fight that we have before us. Paul said in his own experience, I have fought the good fight. And that is so much what I want for all of us, that we would be able to say the same thing that Paul said. We have fought the good fight. We've run the race and we've won the victory in Him because the victory was already won. We are more than conquerors because He has already defeated the enemy. Let it be known among us that we stand on those promises in that victory that He has given. And we know that the outcome has already been achieved by Him for He is the victor the leader, the king, the master, our God reigns. And to that I say, hallelujah. Amen. Grace and peace.